doing setup like what we do here. Uh, and so that can make things difficult. But we want everybody to, to get to, to have a chance to be a part of that. So that'll be at around 9.30. Our kids are going to be doing uh, a 9.15 Bible study, our older kids. And so it allows a good opportunity for parents maybe to be involved in that as well. Cool chances. Again, put it in your pocket. We'll talk more about it. If you're a man, consider the men's retreat. Um, it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. I'm probably not selling it as well as I should. It's well worth the time. So, um, yeah, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And we just thank you for James and the, the courage with which he writes. As the leader of, yeah, the early church, as a man filled with your spirit, who writes with passion and, and with this kind of punch, Lord. And, and we pray, Lord, that we would be able to open ourselves up to hear from what it is James is speaking so long ago. Yeah, affect us with your word this morning. Convict us, encourage us, and lead us into your life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read, uh, this is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You can follow along with this uh, in your Bibles or on the screen. James begins, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose, suppose a, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
Like, James is, is one of those books that's, that's always rattled the church a little bit, uh, at least for the last, we can say certainly for the last 600 years. It's just rattled the church. And unless you're like just not paying attention when James 2 is read, like you're almost guaranteed to hear what, what he's just said and kind of feel that, this sense of something is, is off with James, right? Like if you've been in, in church very long, James starts to sound a little bit like a heretic. It's like, James, you're, you're on like theological thin ice. You have to be cautious. This all makes sense to me, James, but it sounds like you're about to go down like a, a difficult path, right? And, and what makes it sound so jarring to most of us is that we've grown up in churches where we've been discipled and taught the word, and we've been taught this particular word, deeds, that James is using in a very particular kind of way, right? The word deeds that he's using is the same word in Greek that Paul often uses, but normally we translate it as works, right? Uh, some of your translations, if you were reading from your own Bibles, might have said works instead of deeds, right? James is saying faith without works is dead, right? And when we hear that, we think, well, wait, like, obviously, I mean, James, Paul says something kind of different than that, right? Ephesians 2, verse 8, right? By grace you have been saved through faith, not by your works. Or, or Galatians 3, like these famous moments where Paul is making this crystal clear, right? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit through the works of the law or, or through faith? Paul pushes this, and something begins to sound off with James. But that is because we've spent so much of our lives seeing faith and works, faith and deeds, almost as if they're like diametrically opposed to one another, as if they're at odds with one another. And the word works in particular has an almost kind of like negative tone to it. It's inherently negative because people have gone, you know, down some strange paths with that. But James doesn't see it that way at all. And the early church doesn't see it that way at all. We see it that way because of the Reformation. We see that because of, of history and the time that we've spent in church, but that's not how they heard it. But we're scandalized by it. I remember the first time I, I read James, I was in the seventh grade. Uh, I was 12 or 13, I guess. And someone said, you should read this. So I, I sat down and I read it. And I was scandalized by James for a completely different reason. Because I didn't know anything about the theological conversations that had been going on. I had not been taught any of that at that point in my life yet. I, I didn't know. I'd never read Ephesians or Galatians or Romans. And I was scandalized by what I was hearing for a different reason. Right? I had spent much of my childhood in church. I was very familiar with the, the ins and outs of church, but for me, church was another one of those like social customs that I was obligated to, right? It was a societal norm in the South where I grew up, and I just kind of had to conform to it. And honestly, that didn't seem like much of a problem to me because these people didn't seem like hard to hang with, right? I wasn't particularly impressed with church people. Like they were not living particularly intriguing lives or unique lives 
They were not particularly virtuous. They were prone to the same kinds of things I was, it seemed like. I guess I can hang. I can do this. This seems fine to me. That made sense. And so I, I went to church. And while I was there, we would talk about what we believed about God. I'd be taught things. Somebody would stand at the front and talk about what we believed about God. But my sense was none of this really applies when we're off the premises, Like, obviously, this applies while we're here, and we're going to talk about it while we're here, but when I leave here, this doesn't really apply. None of us are living according to any of this, really. It didn't seem that way to me. And so when I heard James say, faith without works, faith without deeds is dead, all I could hear was church without deeds, church without works, Without a people who are living this intriguing, captivating life of the kingdom, doing the work of the kingdom, that is dead. And the way I've been doing church, the way I've assumed it's supposed to be, it's dead. Church couldn't be this event where somebody like me stands up here and pontificates about the beauty of the gospel, and we all are moved just a little bit, and then we leave and go home, and we continue to build our lives around whatever it is we want to, our goals, our dreams, our visions, our hopes ourselves, while we neglect others continually, right? While we neglect the work of the kingdom. It rattled me a bit. And I think that's how James actually intended to rattle us. That's what he wanted to happen. He didn't know he was going to become a part of some like theological debate hundreds and hundreds of years later. He had no idea. James was just agitated with our tendency to divorce what we believe, our theology, from our practice. He was bothered by that. He saw it. He was surrounded in Jerusalem by this group of people who knew the law. They'd come to faith in Christ, and it wasn't for lack of of knowledge or understanding or belief. It was lack of work that he saw. And he couldn't stand talking about God in abstractions. These abstract notions about God, it made him uncomfortable. He needed to ground all of these abstract notions and ideas, these things we believe about the character of God. He needed to ground that in the material of of my life. He needed it to become concrete and real. But unfortunately, I think for most of us, That's what what church has consisted of for a lot of our lives. It's consisted of a lot of abstractions. Somebody like me comes up here and we talk in these very abstract sort of notions. We traffic in the abstract and you walk away feeling like, "I, I, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do with this. We come and, and we spend so much time, right? We've just read James 2, and the point of what I am doing up here is to help you understand what the passage means. We're discerning together what does this passage mean, and we pour over it. Not only that, not only what did it mean for us, but what did it mean then, right? In the last 100, 150 years, we finally begin to unearth some things. We have access to so much information, and we want to know what it meant to them. We're asking all of these good questions, right? But I love, uh, this is something a, a biblical scholar, Richard Baucom, said. And it, it hits really hard. He says, we cannot know what a passage means until we live it as it was expected to be. You cannot know what a passage means until you actually 
choose to live it. That was its intent. You can't understand what it means at a theoretical or abstract level. No, it, you have to know what it means by living it, by attempting it, by giving yourself to it. And it's important to be reminded over and over again, the book of James, along with all these other letters that are written to the early church, it's not some ancient piece of literature that was meant to be dissected and analyzed by future generations. But that's generally how we treat it. We read it like it's any other piece of literature, and we try to analyze it the same way we would a piece of poetry, the same way we would Homer, Plato, Aristotle, right? We just break it down, and we try to understand exactly what they were getting at. But James wasn't attempting that. James was writing a letter to people as broken and as ordinary as you and I, and he intended that the letter would have life-changing, transformative, behavior modification kind of effects, right? It was going to affect change in their lives over the days and the months ahead of them as the church. That was his intent, right? Imagine how absurd it would be if future generations should find one of Mosaic's monthly emails and break it apart piece by piece, trying to understand what these people believe. It's an email, guys. Like it has these simple details of who we are. It was meant to communicate information, needs, and move people towards something. What are we doing? And this is, this is the way we, we treat so many books of the Bible. Like we're breaking it down, we're analyzing it, but it, it never seems to take effect as James intends it. He makes this really powerful statement in chapter 1, and, and maybe you, you missed it. It's right toward the end. James says, receive the word implanted in you. Some of your translations might say planted in you. Receive the word that is planted in you. This is the way James envisions it. God, like a, a gardener, has taken a bulb, dug down deep into the soil, and placed it perfectly covered it back up, right? He's placed this in the ground, like a, a gardener who's, who's grafting a branch to a tree. It has to be perfect. He's engrafted the word in us. He has implanted it, surgically placed it in us. This is the kind of language that James is using, right? He envisions faith that way. These things we believe, it's been implanted in you. It's a part of your molecular structure at this point, it's who you are. And James says that, and you have to take it seriously because James had seen it firsthand. Like, imagine for James what it is to grow up in the same house with the word implanted in flesh. To grow up in the same house with the word incarnate. James knows this is the way God works. This is the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. He has placed the word in us, even as it was placed in Jesus. For James, faith was something that we needed to put flesh on. Faith was something that needed hands and feet. Belief needs hands and feet in James's eyes. And so he doesn't pull any punches, right? He's punchy about the way he writes. Faith needs flesh on it. What we believe needs flesh on it. And that's, that's kind of where the passage is taking us. But I want to take a minute, at least, 
and bring James and Paul into conversation with one another. Because uh, I can't just say, James and Paul are on the same page. We're good. Um, it's important because I think for a, a lot of people, there's this sense where you read James and Paul side by side, you kind of go, it feels like they're on different ends of a theological spectrum here. It seems like they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable in the same room. But they were. They did that multiple times. That is our misconception. We bring so much baggage into these conversations. So like James and Paul are both using the same words, faith and works, to describe the life of a disciple. But they're in completely different contexts. Completely different demographics. James is working almost exclusively with Jewish people who have converted to faith and are following Jesus. Paul is working with some Jewish people who've converted to faith and some Gentile people, pagans, who have converted to Christian faith. It's a completely different environment in which to be doing ministry. They just approach it different ways. The best way I've heard it said is this. James is using Paul's vocabulary but not his dictionary. Does that make sense? James is using the, the, the same vocabulary. They got the same words that they're using to try to accomplish the same thing, but they understand those words differently in certain moments, just like all of us very often. We talk with the same vocabulary, but not always with the same dictionary. So you have to kind of ask yourself, well, what exactly does Paul mean when he says the word works? What does James mean when he says works? Or what does faith mean to them? Because I know what we think it means and, and what like, we've held on to. And a lot of times, again, we feel like these two understandings are at odds with one another. But that's a misconception. Right? For Paul, the word works is referring to the Jewish law, right? It obviously is referring to the Jewish law. And, and particularly, Paul is referring to things like circumcision and, and dietary laws, what you eat, who you eat with, all of this. And Paul finds himself in a situation where people are saying, as Jewish Christians, we think all of these things we've believed for so long need to still be in practice. They're still at play. And a man who is a believer needs to be circumcised or else he's not really saved. I mean, that's a messy situation. He's saying that, that certain people want to eat with, with only their people. Only Jewish people eat with Jewish people, and only Gentiles eat with Gentiles. Like, we've always done it this way, and that's the way it's going to be. And Paul is writing into that situation. Paul argues instead that it's, it's not my work that saves me. It's Jesus' work that saves me. And I choose to cling to that, to believe it, to hold on to it, to let that get inside of me. It's his work and not mine. James, on the other hand, like, he's just as Jewish, thoroughly Jewish. He's not quite as theologically educated as Paul. He's from Nazareth, man. He's just like Jesus. He comes from a, a humble family, humble beginnings. But James means the same thing. When he says the word works, he means the works of the law, right? But James... James has now redefined law in light of the words of Jesus. James knows that, that Jesus has given us a completely different way of seeing the law. Jesus walks around saying, I've not come to abolish the law. I'm not telling you to, to disregard it altogether. I'm telling you I've come to fulfill the law, right? Somebody comes to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And we all know this so well, right? If we know nothing else in the New Testament, we seem to know this. Jesus quotes back to them, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And everybody kind of like golf claps them a little bit because they're impressed. That's the same sort of thing I would say. Jesus, well said. But then he adds something to it. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? We've heard this over and over again. We are to love God and, and love our neighbor. This is how Jesus reworks the law. He says all of the law hangs on these two commandments. We've talked about this over and over again. This is how James sees the law. He knows that Jesus intends that the law, what I believe, ultimately affects my relationship with my neighbor. This is what Jesus is getting at. It cannot remain divorced, separated from how I see my neighbor. My belief is tied to my work, right? And James holds on to that. James is making the same point. And so he actually references the Shema in James chapter 2. You may have caught it. It's, it's verse 19. You believe that there is one God. James is, is getting back at, at Deuteronomy 6. You know it well. You say it all the time. Daily you say this multiple times. You believe that there is one God. James says, even, even demons believe in God. And they shudder, right? Even they believe that. James is saying, believing in God, that's fine, but your theology affects the way you live. It affects who you are. It affects your work. It affects your deeds. James is not arguing that your work saves you. James is arguing that you cannot divorce your work from your faith. You cannot. And Paul will say similar things. He just says it in reverse, right? In Romans chapter 3, this is what, what Paul is getting at. We are justified by faith and not by works. James says, it's not faith alone that saves you, but, but works. They're both saying, you can't separate these two things. They cannot become separate in your life. They are always working together. This is how they function. Faith and deeds, faith and works cannot be separated or divorced. So when it comes to, to works, that's, that's part of how they see it, right? But faith, they're pretty well in agreement, even easier. Neither of them believes that faith is this vague statement about who God is. Faith is not believing that God exists. And we see this a lot in a, a deeply nominalistic Bible Belt sort of context. Everybody believes in God at some level. And yes, that, sure, there are the, the odd people here and there who would say, no, I'm, I'm atheistic. Granted, their lives are still marked by the principles of, of Christian faith because they want that, but, but not all of the baggage that comes with it. Um, but in a, a nominalistic context, you hear this sort of thing all the time. And James argues... Good, you believe God, right? But this vague, almost agnostic or, or like deistic belief in God, that's not actually faith how he defines it. Faith is something beyond just that. He says, you believe that God is one. Great, this is good. But even demons believe that. Demons believe it and they are unchanged by it. They live their lives in opposition to what they know to be true about God, right? Their faith does nothing. 
That's not faith, this vague belief in God. Believing in this God who is distant and almost unknowable, a God who makes no claim on my life, whose character doesn't reshape my own character, but who is also available when I might need him. That's not faith, James is saying. That's silliness. It's a mockery. That's not faith. That's just a philosophical statement. God does or doesn't exist. No. James wants to say faith is, is more than that. Faith and works are bound to each other in this unique kind of way. I was thinking about it um, this, this week as I'm driving through my neighborhood. I live in what I like to call a Halloween neighborhood. I don't know what your neighborhood is. Some, some people have like serious Christmas houses. We got serious Halloween houses. Everybody likes Halloween, but there's this one guy who's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's like the, the Clark Griswold of Halloween. You all know exactly who this guy is. And um, he's got like these towering, monstrous figures all over his front yard, right? Your favorite slasher villain is a mannequin in his front yard. He's dressed up perfectly. I mean, it is dark, okay? And it's amusing to everybody in the neighborhood. Everybody loves it. They celebrate it. Man, these people are all in. This is so much fun, right? But the, the dogs, the dogs are not amused by it. There's this moment that happens every once in a while. Somebody's out walking their dog, and you see it happen. They're walking by. They're enjoying themselves. Life is good. They're on a walk. They're not inside. Their owner's letting them explore and sniff all kinds of things. And then this terrifying figure is there off in the distance. Sometimes it's got wings. Like, who knows what's happening here? The slasher villain that's standing there in the yard, for them, the threat is real. And so they're barking, like, absolutely losing their minds. And they don't realize it. It's just decorations. And, and James is saying something similar. Like, it just... He says, all of these things we say we believe, it sounds so good. It sounds thoroughly Christian. It looks and sounds Christian, but it has none of the substance. It's just, it's just decorations. When we separate these two things, it's just decoration. There's no real life in it. Faith, he says, is dead without deeds. What makes his body, the church, alive, what makes our faith alive is not just some vague statement about what we believe, right? Works, he's saying, are the guts of faith. Works are like the internal organs, the working, functioning organs that make this body more than a corpse, Our lives, this transformative effect that what we believe is having on us, that's what makes us more than just a mannequin in someone's front yard, more than just decorations that look and sound very Christian, very Christ-like. James is, again, not pulling punches. James uses this painful illustration to prove his point that we all know so well. And it hits particularly close to home because... You've probably done it before. Now, again, James is not making a statement about homeless ministry. James is not trying to tell you that every time you ever see anyone asking for anything, if you walk away from them, you're apparently not a believer. James is making a statement about faith. This is an analogy he's making. He's trying to make a point, but it's one that he wants to hit us at that level to make us think twice the next time we do see someone in need. He says... Suppose a brother or sister is without food or clothes. 
regular occurrence in downtown Birmingham, obviously. If one of you says to them, shalom, go in peace, be warm and, and well-fed, but does nothing to meet their physical needs, James says, what good would that be? It sounds so nice to say these kinds of things. Shalom, right? Peace. God bless you. Again, in the South, our preferred is have a blessed day, right? All these things, they sound so nice. Hope things get better. Praying for you. And James is saying it's just decorations. What good would that be? And you can't help but hear Jesus, right? Jesus says something so startlingly simple about the kingdom of God. He says there's a day coming, right? In judgment, there will be sheep and goats, right? You'll be divided. Those who belong in the kingdom and those who were never loyal, given over to it completely. And he says the ones who are, who are sheep, they saw me when I was hungry and they fed me. You saw me when I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You saw me without shelter. You took me in. You clothed me when I had none, right? And he'll say to other people, you didn't clothe me when you saw me with no clothes. You didn't take me in when you saw me without a place to stay. Like you can't help but hear Jesus in that. James is speaking the words of Jesus to us in a different kind of way. That's what faith has to look like, Jesus says. And James is trying to reiterate that. James is more than that forcing us to remember that Christ himself was left naked, helpless. That Christ himself became poor, that we might become rich. Like James is trying to press this image, right? His words are confronting us with the truth that Christ became poor, and yet... We routinely neglect all of these opportunities for our faith to be put to work. We routinely neglect all of these opportunities to pour into the lives of people just like him. Like James will not soften the blow for you. Like he wants you to feel this. Faith cannot be this vague, abstract idea you have about God and what he is like. It has to shape you. It has to be implanted in you. It has to affect you in a different way. Jonathan said it last week. Uh, James cuts us to heal us. He's not here just to say something nice to encourage us. James cuts us before he's, he's going to heal us. And at this point, he, he says something pretty harsh, right? You foolish person. Do you want evidence? Do you want me to prove it to you? You want to talk the Old Testament? We'll talk the Old Testament, he says. He's going to give us some encouragement. But first, he starts with Abraham. Remember our father Abraham, right? Whose faith, we all know Abraham is a giant of faith. There's no name more synonymous with faith than Abraham. Paul uses Abraham as an example of faith in Romans. You're familiar with it. In Galatians, it comes up again and again. James says, remember Abraham. And how his faith was tested when the very thing he had been promised, his own son, was required of him. And Abraham, though like any other father, probably was hesitant as he walked him up that mountain. He did it. He was willing. And God 
stopped the whole thing before it could get too ugly. James is saying, like, that's what faith is like. And that's what the people of God have been doing. People just as ordinary and broken as you and I. Abraham has a, a pretty flawed record. That's what they've been doing for a long time. Their faith has been working, doing something, producing something, affecting them in a different way. But he knows, again, Abraham's like a giant of the faith. It's hard to relate to Abraham, okay? Who can really relate to Abraham? And so he says, how about Rahab? She is no giant of the faith. She's a pagan prostitute. And James says, even she. Even she in the midst of this uncertain moment where she's seemingly just come to faith in the God of Israel, of Yahweh. When someone knocks on her door, Israelite men needing a place to hide, she's showing us what it looks like when faith begins to work. Faith begins to produce something, to do something. becomes more than just some abstract idea about God. This has always been the substance of the people of God, working faith, faith working. This is what it's supposed to be, James is saying. And I, and I love what he, he says about Abraham. His faith and his actions were working together. Faith and action, faith and work, they cannot be divided, right? And his faith was made complete by what he did. His faith was made complete. That's this word in Greek. You've heard us mention it before. In James, it happens seven different times. Teleos, right? In Greek, it means like the end, the goal, the thing we're working toward. Completion, completeness, wholeness, fullness. That's what it means. Not just to cross a finish line, but to do it perfectly. To be made perfect and complete and whole. His faith was made perfect. His faith was made complete and whole by what he did. Did. Last week, Jonathan read something similar in chapter 1. He says, James is writing and, and makes this statement, let perseverance finish its work, right? We see all these terrible, painful things in our lives, and we want to avoid them at all costs. And James says, no, they're actually a part of the work. Let them finish their work. Perseverance has to finish its work. There's something beautiful about that. Let perseverance finish its work so that you will be mature and complete. Teleos, again, right? And now James is saying, let faith finish its work in you, right? It's our lives, it's our work that makes our faith truly whole, right? Truly complete. That makes it more than just some abstract notion of God. That makes it more than just decorations. And that's what James says we are after as disciples of Jesus is wholeness, Completeness, maturity. Now it becomes real, okay? So I think the question I feel like James leaves us with is like, at what point in your life did you give up on seeking wholeness and become like satisfied, like settling for survival? You stop seeking wholeness and you begin to settle for like your faith surviving. Like the, the church is full of this. James was seeing something like it, right? Imagine what it's like. In Jerusalem, famously, people were, were poor and going without food. That's why Paul is taking up a collection where he is. 
in Asia Minor in Greece. He's taking up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who are suffering, right? And James is saying, at what point did your faith stop being about this other thing? wholeness and become just about surviving the onslaught of what you're dealing with like when did what you believe become a stagnant confession and not a living confession right when did that happen because it inevitably does there are these moments right i've been thinking a lot about it like our generation is going to be grappling with the effects of a pandemic and our particular cultural moment for a lot of years to come and like we're seeing that even now in kind of what feels like a post-pandemic cultural moment. It's well-documented, volunteering, giving, like things we might, you know, call working faith, faith in action, faith working together with our, our deeds. Those things are down. They've suffered through all of it. And that's not just nonprofits, Right? That's, that's like churches. It's happening in churches. And I think James forces us to kind of like wrestle with like why we believe that's the case, right? The church is not excluded from that. People are leaving the faith very often. People are leaving the church. And I mean, we can explain it a lot of different ways, right? Churches closed a lot more during the pandemic. It was hard. Even the government stepped in to try to stop that from happening in some scenarios, some point to like the political and cultural tensions that exist in our moment, and they say, well, that, that's had a wearing effect on our faith. Some people point to the failures of church leadership, the sins of those who are in leadership, the terrible things that have happened, right? That has worn on people's faith, and now they finally got encouraged to step away from it. And I think a lot of people in church feel like all of these hits we've taken over the years, that, that just causes our faith to deteriorate. It eats away at it, right? And we just keep trying to believe in the face of all of the things that are happening in our lives, in the, the world around us, in our community around us. And the sense we have is like, if my faith survives, that's a win. Faith becomes that for so many of us, a means of survival. And should it be that? Yeah. Faith should be one of those things that enables us to persevere through really painful things. Yes, but not only that. James is saying it's not just that. At what point did you lose sight of wholeness and begin to seek survival instead, right? And I think in like our present moment, there's this thing, and it's deceptive, and it's hard to put a finger on like how this happens and how to manage it, right? But we as a culture find ourselves in this deeply encouraging moment, right? In the last 50 years, this is one of the most important things that's happened. The emphasis on mental health, on taking care of yourself, on acknowledging what you're wrestling with internally. It's good. More people are saying the word therapist at this point in America's history than at any other point, right? They're all comfortable talking about these things they would never have felt comfortable talking about. Grappling with these things they feel deeply. It's good. Until it's not, right? We find that sometimes we retreat into self-care, and it's good un until it's not, until it becomes this sort of toxic, self-centered spiral into discovering myself, and that's all that matters to me anymore is knowing myself, understanding myself. That's where real fulfillment is found. 
and I begin to lose touch with the real wholeness that I was called to. I assume that wholeness is found where? But in discovering myself. And James says, it's decorations. That's not what we're after. Real wholeness. That's what we're seeking. I am called to the wholeness of my faith working together with the concrete details of my life. My faith working with how I see my relationships, with how I see my vocation, with how I see the other, right? With how I see money, with all of these things. I'm called to the wholeness of the church, the people of God, whose faith doesn't waver every time mine does on an individual level, whose faith and work together corporately becomes the hands and feet of Jesus. And instead, very often, we're just retreating into taking care of myself, right? And the sense, you hear this all the time, you've heard it, and it it might shake you because you you realize, like, I, I sometimes say those kinds of things. The sense we have very often is, like, I have to take care of myself and to love this person. It might put all of that in jeopardy. And so I keep myself at a distance from it. Be warm and well-fed, my friend. God's blessings on you. We retreat into these things, and it becomes this destructive spiral. James is saying your faith cannot be merely analytical and theoretical. It cannot be this this self-centered, inward-turning thing. When I look at these painful situations playing out in my life and the lives of of other people, like the question we're often asking is like, what do I believe about this situation, right? How do I understand this situation? How do I see it? What am I to do with it? And James, I, I think, wants us to ask more than just like, what do I believe about this thing that's happening in our city, in Israel, whatever, right? What do I believe about this? Not just that, but how does my faith work into this situation? How is my faith alive in this moment, right? How does this thing that we confess as a body of believers every week get into us, implanted in us? How do I put flesh on the thing I believe day after day? How do we corporately together, mysteriously somehow, as broken as we are, become the hands and feet of Jesus together? What does that look like? How does my life not revolve around a faith that is merely surviving and begin to revolve around a faith that is working, producing something in us together? As the band comes, like there's this cool opportunity, like every time we come to the table to give ourselves completely to this. to to take seriously the body and blood of Jesus that we've been given, to take seriously the real presence of Jesus with us, to be satisfied in his presence, to come to the table, as Paul says, like considering these things before we come, not to tread on them by coming with this very casual, flippant sort of attitude, but to come reflectively, prayerfully to the table, asking what it is the Spirit is working in us and calling us to. That's what I'd invite you to in these moments. We're going to worship. You're free. Come and tear off a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and move back toward your seats, and then we'll all come back and do this together. But, like, pray and consider these things. What does the future look like for you as an individual, obviously, but beyond just that level, like, for, for the church, our church, the church, like, what are these things? What are the dreams that, that God is giving us and not that we've, you know, carved out for ourselves? What does faith working look like? Now, let's pray.
Father, I thank you for um, yeah, the words of James, um, for their punchiness, for their effect, God, and I pray they would, they would affect us in the weeks ahead. And that we would leave this place not discouraged, but enlivened, Lord, reminded of the truth that you are not an abstract or distant God. That you're not just some long list of descriptors. You're not just loving, you are love. And by the spirit you've placed in us, somehow you are making us love. Word incarnate. And plant your word within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.